This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Proper Cloth, the leader in men's custom shirts at propercloth.com. Ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Create your own custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Shirts start from $80 and are delivered in just two weeks. For premium quality and perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com and use gift code manliness to get $20 off your first custom shirt today. Again, propercloth.com, gift code manliness for $20 off your first custom shirt. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. We've all heard the jokes about useless liberal arts degrees. You know, it's good for being a barista, whatever. But my guest today argues that in today's high-tech economy, liberal arts degrees can be incredibly useful and even lucrative. His name is George Anders, and he's the author of the book, You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless, quote-unquote, Liberal Arts Education. We begin our conversation looking at research that suggests that the jobs that pay the most money and are in the most demand today require a liberal arts background and not necessarily a STEM degree. He then goes on to highlight research that shows that most of the jobs being created today aren't in computer programming or hard science, rather in jobs that support those fields like sales, management, marketing, and consulting. George then argues that the individual's liberal arts background are in a killer position to fill these jobs. We then discuss the perils of a liberal arts degree and what individuals who have earned them can do to market themselves and take control of their careers. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash liberal arts. George Anders, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be on the program. So you recently published a book, You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Quote-Unquote Useless Liberal Arts Education. Curious, what caused you to write this book? Was there a particular moment you experienced, or was it just several moments, or the zeitgeist that you've been hearing the news, or are you just a liberal arts major who just got tired of hearing your degree is a waste of money? So the, the first propellant, uh, I end up being on a bunch of alumni lists, so I get a half dozen calls a year from people who go, hey, I just graduated. I'm interested in writing. You seem to be able to make a living in writing. How do I do it? And I go and have coffee with them. And they're all absolutely wonderful people. And they're high energy. And they're smart. And they're persuasive. And you go, you guys should be crushing it in the job market. But they aren't. And then in my day job as a journalist, I interview a lot of employers. And they're always saying, you know, we want to hire STEM, but we're not getting the creative people we need. We're not getting the people who think outside the box. And I'm going, oh my God, there's this giant disconnect. You've got all these really good people who could be coming into your organization and could be doing really great things. And you've got a bunch of hiring specs that just make you blind to this talent pool. So the reason I wrote the book was because I felt that the college to career pathway was broken and somehow it needs to get fixed. And I'm going to do everything I can with this book to try and help us get to a better place. Yeah. One of the surprising uh, bits of research you highlight in the book was, you know, cause like since I was in high school, which was man, 20 years ago, it was always like, you got to learn how to program like the jobs of the future are, you know, you got software programmers, software developers, et cetera, et cetera. But you point out that a lot of the new jobs between 2012, 2016 weren't actually programmer jobs. Yeah. In fact, if you look at the numbers, we created about 10 million jobs. Only 600,000 of those were in uh, information technology. So 94% of the jobs came outside of that core STEM function. Areas like market research are booming. You need people to design the questionnaires, evaluate the data, fundraising as a growth area. Social media is huge. This is the redemption of the English major, that at last you can get paid good money for being sassy and clever and coming up with you know the kinds of sayings that go viral. So there are a lot of opportunities that don't have to do with tech. And a point I want to underscore is that tech will open up opportunities quickly, 
but it'll shut them down just as fast. And whatever software engineers are needed for right now, within five years, that gets automated. So, you know, it used to cost a million dollars to build a website. Now you can sit down with WordPress or Squarespace and get yourself a site in two or three hours. That's a lot of programming jobs that don't exist anymore. So yes, tech can offer you good opportunities, but these can be short-lived. And I think the ability to be creative, to be imaginative, to show empathy with other people, those are going to be skills that you can take from one workplace to another. And a lot of those just parallel what you're going to get if you come out of college with a classic liberal arts education. So why do you think that that refrain, though, still exists that, okay, if you want to do well, get a computer science degree, become a programmer, when, you know, as you pointed out, like a lot of the jobs, they're becoming automated. There's, there's, it's a smaller percentage of our overall job market. Why do we still have that? Why does that disconnect exist? So I blame the media. When in doubt, you should always blame the media. Semi-seriously, if you look at the kinds of people that end up on the covers of business magazines, if you look at the kind of movies they get made with the, you know, coder in the hoodie making millions of dollars, yeah, at the high end, you can make incredible money if you have got great technical skills. But, you know, you could also make incredible money playing in the NBA. And that doesn't mean all of us should try and, you know, become basketball players. So I think there's a little bit of a skew there that we focused on what the very top achievers in STEM can do, and it's impressive. And we've tried to say, well, everyone can get a piece of that pie. And the answer is no. If you are a B-plus or a B-minus coder, you're going to have a much more satisfying life and probably a more stable income if you look at some of the ways that you can use your people skills. So, yeah, I mean, that's another interesting thing that you highlight. The research, you point out that, okay, we think that STEM jobs, that's where the money is at. But you highlight research that shows that, no, actually, in the long run, individuals with liberal arts degree end up earning more or they end their career with a higher salary than, say, someone with a STEM degree. So I tell the, the story in the book of Andy Andereg, who graduated from the University of Kansas with a master's in fine arts and creative writing. And her first job was nothing really amazing. She went and joined Groupon and she wrote those sassy little teaser notices that Groupon would mail out to us. And I think it paid like 33000 a year. But she gets there and she's resourceful and she's clever and she goes, you know what, let me build you a training module so that you can hire more people like me and you can get them up to speed faster. And then she said, let me go and help you guys on campus recruiting. And pretty soon they're going, wow, you're actually really useful here. We want to bump your pay up. And she gets up to close to 50000 within a few months. They go, you should manage people. She becomes managing editor there. She's up to eighty or 90000 Now she's set up as a consultant to other companies that need to figure out how to make their stuff go viral. She's working about half time. She's earning six figures and she's got a place by the ocean in Venice, California, where she works on her short stories. Life's good. But there, there are a lot of those stories out there that your first job is not your destiny. And you know, in the course of going from college to your early 40s, people will probably work 11 or 12 different jobs. And instead of fixating on what's job number one, being able to work that pathway where your first job leads to a better second job, leads to a better third job, over time, uh, life gets better. So STEM degrees, uh, you probably land a job that pays really well, your first job, but it sort of stagnates. It's not going to go up too much, but you argue that liberal arts degrees, you're probably the first job, the first few jobs you get, it's going to be peanuts, right? 30,000. But as you adapt, as you develop some career capital, that can go up, continue to, to rise. Absolutely. And 
you know, is it possible for everyone to do that? No, there's a bit of risk here, but it's a big, broad pathway that can work for a lot of people. And public rhetoric is acting as if that's impossible. So I, what I wanted to do was open people's eyes to some possibilities that they might not be hearing about. So what is it about a liberal arts degree? Well, for like, how do you define a liberal arts degree? Is it just, is it any like the soft things like literature, psychology, and what sort of, uh, in de- sort of degrees were you highlighting in the book? Yeah, you're in the right zone. I mean, humanities, which is, you know, English, classics, uh, philosophy, and then social sciences, which is psychology, sociology. I count history that way. Some people count it in the humanities. But yeah, it tends to be the, the disciplines that work more with words than with numbers. Although every now and then numbers are starting to come into the social sciences too. And there's nothing wrong with being able to function in, in both levels. It's like being able to play the piano with both hands. You do something with your left hand, you do something else with the right. So I do like that sense, though, that you're working in the world of ideas rather than the world of equations. So what is it about a liberal arts degree that allows individuals to thrive in today's you know, job market that's you know, being eaten by software. It's much more information-based, much more tech-based. How is it that a person who studied philosophy or classics, how are they able to thrive in that sort of job market? So I identified five areas that seemed to be constant on what I did was I looked at job ads that offered at least $100,000 a year and were looking for people with critical thinking skills, which tends to be the the big claim of, you know, major in the liberal arts, you're going to learn critical thinking. And I go, okay, what exactly is this critical thinking? And as I said, there are five things it amounts to. First is the willingness to go explore something new. And a lot of people just want to be told what to do and do the same thing for a long time. But if you're willing to be adventurous, if you're willing to go off the paved roads, there are a lot of opportunities in this world. Second thing, the ability to analyze problems and sort of peel apart, gather the right facts. Third thing, to be able to work up solutions, especially in murky areas where it's not obvious, what do you do? You know, where are we going to build that road? That's the kind of thing that a city planner needs to figure out. And that's not just an engineering question. That's a whole lot of trade-offs. So both literally and metaphorically, if you're a good road builder, you can always find work. Fourth area, which is really crucial, is the ability to read the room. And that translates into empathy, translates into understanding what's on other people's minds. And that can make you so effective in all kinds of business settings, all kinds of social settings. And if you're in politics, you need to understand you know, why some people are going to vote for you, why some of them aren't, what their sticking points are, how to address those sticking points. And that starts to translate into leadership, that if you've got that ability to read the room, you can become the team leader, you can become much higher up in management. And then the last one is the ability to communicate persuasively. And, you know, we ask for good communication skills, but I think that lots of people have good communication skills. What you really want is the ability to put it to work in a setting and bring people around to your point of view. So all five of those things are things that you can pick up with an English degree, with a history degree. It doesn't really matter literally whether you know why the Irish Rebellion of 1798 happened. But it does matter that you know, wow, there are all these different interest groups. They want different things. And I ended up talking with some people who've done very well in sales with a liberal arts degree. And they will tell me, you know, working with a client is like a character in a novel. And you get used to figuring out what makes this person tick and how can we get to a situation where we can go forward together. I mean, what I love about the book is all the case studies you, you, you provide. And I was really impressed with the case studies of individuals with a liberal arts degree that somehow get a job at one of these tech firms. And you think, okay, to get a job there, you need to have a computer background. 
Um, but in a lot of these cases, these individuals, okay, they thought, I don't have that, but I, I can get it. And they use the resources and that skill set they develop at, with their liberal arts degree to teach themselves new skills to, to thrive in this new job. Very much so. And in fact, I opened the book with the story of an anthropology major who, after a bunch of zigs and zags, ends up doing user research for Etsy, which is the big global arts marketplace. And what does Etsy need? It needs someone who can figure out what exactly is it that artists want to accomplish on our site? What do they care about? You know, What's their point of pride? What are their apprehensions? How do we make it click for them? And all of a sudden, an anthro background turns out to be kind of useful. And he'll either go out in the field and talk to them or set up these hour-long Skype calls. And he's really good at drawing people out and going, okay, tell me more. Explain to me why that is. What's, what's your belief? What got you interested in art? What, what are your best pieces and why are you proud of them? And that's an interviewing skill and a field research skill that turns out to be really useful because you can have the best technology in the world, but if you've built your site for a set of consumers that don't exist, or if you've made some mistakes along the way that alienate people, you're never going to have the success that you want. And sometimes bringing in an anthropology major to talk to your users can save you months of time building features that are off target. Right. And another example you provide of liberal arts degrees, individuals with liberal arts degrees thriving in today's more tech-oriented economy is big data, right? We're hearing all this information, big data, big data, big data. But as you highlight, as you point out in the book, like data is meaningless without context. And so you need individuals to take that data, that raw data, and craft it into a story that people can understand. Yeah. And in terms of where the jobs are, what amazed me, I spent some time with Open Table, which is the restaurant booking service. And they have a big data team and it's about 10 or 12 scientists. You don't need that many people to run the numbers. That's done very automatically these days. But they have more than 100 people with iPads that go out on the road and sit down and chat with guys in restaurants and say, okay, here's what I see in the numbers. Here's some things you could do with them. And you need a lot of personality and charm and you got to be a good listener and you got to be good natured. And as you're selling yourself as much as you're selling the numbers. And if they just tried to give restaurants a drop-down menu that says you should rearrange your seating, the guy would go, no, this is my restaurant. Who are you to tell me this? But if you've got someone who comes in with personality and, yes, they've got the data on the iPad and all of the bar graphs and everything, but they're going to make you feel nice about it first. That ability to connect with another person turns out to be really valuable. And that's more than 100 jobs for doing that as opposed to 10 jobs for being the tech guy in the background. We're going to take a quick break for words from our sponsors. All right, we're big protein bar connoisseurs here in my family. In fact, a long, long time ago, I had a website called Protein Bar Review where I viewed protein bars. Anyways, my favorite protein bars are the ones that actually taste like food, not some sort of like processed thing that's been shaped into a bar. Don't like that. That's why I love RX bars. It's a whole food protein bar made with a few simple clean ingredients, which all serve a purpose. There's egg whites for protein, dates to bind, nuts for texture. And in the interest of full transparency, all the core ingredients are labeled right on the front of the package. No BS. They're perfect for breakfast on the go, a snack out of the office, throw in your bag for a bike ride or a hike, traveling, anything. Better yet, beyond being a go snack that checks off a number of nutritional boxes, RX bars actually taste delicious. I love these things. And they got a lot of different flavor varieties, all of which are gluten-free, soy-free, dairy-free, and free 
free of any added sugar, artificial colors, flavors, preservatives, or fillers. You can actually taste the cocoa, the real fruit, and the spices like sea salt. Whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit flavors, there's an RX bar for you. You gotta try these out. I love these things. They said we're protein bar connoisseurs, and this has quickly become one of the favorites in our household. If you want to try this out, got a special offer for you. You get 25% off your first order by visiting rxbar.com slash manliness and entering promo code manliness at checkout. Again, 25% off your first order by visiting rxbar.com slash manliness and entering promo code manliness at checkout. Also by Bevel. If you have shaved the multi-blade cartridge, you know that one of the downsides can be is it can cause skin irritation, razor burn, razor bumps, whatever you want to call it. It's uncomfortable, doesn't feel good. Now, solution to this is to switch the traditional safety razor, the single blade. But the problem with that is there is a, a steep learning curve. It does take some skill to practice. And if you don't do it right, you cut yourself up. But here's the thing. The safety razor has been updated for the 21st century thanks to Bevel. Bevel is the first and only shaving system designed to help reduce the appearance of skin irritation and razor bumps. Their single blade safety razor has been re-engineered to be equally functional and also just looks really beautiful and handsome looking. It's been designed to cut hair at the skin level, which means less pulling, less tugging, and less irritation, and also reduces the chance of you getting razor bumps. Besides the re-engineered safety razor, they also have a line of products, shaving creams, aftershaves to help reduce the chances of you getting razor burn. So if you are one of those individuals, men out there, who frequently get razor burn, razor bumps for after shaving, need to check out Bevel. And if you want to get this at a discount, I've got a great offer for you. Get the Bevel shaving system delivered to your door every month or every other month for as low as $29.95. And to get 10% off your first purchase, just go to getbevel.com slash AOM. Again, getbevel.com slash AOM to save 10% off your first purchase. 90% of Bevel users have seen a reduction in razor bumps after just three weeks. So again, go check this out. You're going to love how the safety razor looks. Getbevel.com slash AOM. And now back to the show. Yeah, perfect. You, you give Facebook as an example of that. When they first started their advertising business, they wanted to make it automated, just drop down, and it wasn't going anywhere. And then finally, they hired you know salespeople who would go to people face to face, and that really kickstarted their ad ad sales. Yeah, and you know they'll do something like you know tell you, hey, here's a cupcake shop, and they put up a geotagged Facebook ad to get everyone within half a mile to see, wow, we've got two for one on cupcakes or something like that, and they sold them out like crazy. And you go, okay, that's a very accessible, real story. I can use that in whatever kind of business I have. And there's an art to knowing how to spin those stories right. And it's sociology majors, it's English majors, it's people who have dealt in the world of stories and human beliefs and attitudes and the like that end up doing that the best. So there are now thousands of people with non-technical backgrounds at Facebook making good money, bringing the you know, ad mechanisms to the world in ways that a face-to-face -face meeting can do things that a drop-down menu cannot Right. And you also highlight uh, many of the, the CEOs of some of these large tech companies and just large businesses. It doesn't have to be tech necessarily. Uh, a lot of them have liberal arts degrees. There's philosophy majors, classics majors. Can you highlight some of the, the ones that stood out to you during your research? Yeah. So the philosophy majors, in, in fact, are especially interesting because if you think about it, that is a field where you're in a way put in a position where you imagine ruling the world and coming up with edicts and principles that could guide all of civilization. So <laughs> these are not low ego people. I mean, they've got nice manners. They're not obnoxious, but they, they've got big ambitions. So uh, one of the examples I really enjoyed was Stuart Butterfield, who runs Slack. Slack is an incredibly popular business communications tool that kind of combines the, the fun of Facebook and the utility of email. It's, it's very well built. Uh, but he's the kind of guy who was always thinking about, you know, what is what does the world need? How do we communicate? What does it mean to communicate? And he's able to assess that in sort of a, 
a deeper way than someone who's just going, you know, here's the, um, the technical specs of my site. So very empathetic, very good understanding of his customers and, uh, you know, philosophy degree got him on the road to do that. Right. And he wasn't, he didn't just invent Slack or create Slack. He also created Flickr. Yes, he did. Yeah. And in fact, the, the funny thing about him is he keeps trying to create the ultimate multiplayer video game. Yeah. And none of them ever work. Game never ending, right? Is that what it's called? There's always one feature in there that someone goes, you know what? Even though nobody's playing your video game, that's a really good feature. So Flickr was the one to organize people's photos. And he goes, wow, that could be a standalone business. And he ended up selling it to Yahoo for 20 some million dollars. And then Slack was the communication system within one of these games. And people go, well, the, the game is what it is, but the commu- communication system is really good. So it's, it's, again, something that a liberal arts background may make you more receptive to is you had a really good idea. It's just different than what you thought your idea was. And you need to let go of half of what you thought you were doing and work with the best half. And I think that ability to regroup, to improvise, it's useful throughout all of life that, um, you know, our, our successes are not always where we expect them. And I think there's something about being widely read in college and debating a lot of ideas in seminars that will open up your horizons to that idea that uh, you need a little serendipity and you should you should be willing to retool your plan once you see something new that's going to work. Right. Isn't uh, Be- Bezos, is that he pronounced Like the guy of Amazon, Amazon CEO. Didn't he have a liberal arts degree? He is a polymath. I mean, he's someone who's got expertise in a lot of areas. So he's got a computer science background. And in fact, he ended up being the computer guy at a hedge fund early in his days before setting it up. But he's also an incredibly well-read guy. He's a Princeton graduate. And, uh, you know, he's he's someone who will think in a lot of different directions and kind of combines both elements. I, an interesting thing I just read about him is that he has these meetings, but before they start talking, he makes people read like this memo that's written out for like 30 minutes in silence. And so like he puts a premium on writing skills. He expects the people who lead meetings to know how to write well, which is interesting because you know a lot of you hear a lot in the tech world is like, oh, let's have a, a stand-up meeting. We'll get done really fast. But he's very deliberate and takes almost a professor-like approach to what he does over there at Amazon. So a key point there is that when you write, you actually have to think through logically what you're saying. And when we talk, we can get kind of hand wavy and everyone thinks they heard something slightly different. And the discipline of writing is you actually have to commit to what are we trying to do? What do we expect it to accomplish? When are we getting it done? And it, it forces you to be more rigorous. So um, that's valuable. And I, I've been in meetings where four people come out and each of them think they've, we've decided to do something different. And then you have to have another meeting two weeks later to sort out all that confusion. And you know, time's passed and you haven't accomplished anything. So it's very few people really like to write. Uh, it's much more fun to have written and have produced it, but it's really good discipline and it can save you time. Right. So do, do you need to have, let's say someone's listening to this, they're like their first year in college or they're thinking about going to college, trying to decide on that major to get this, the benefits of a liberal arts degree that we've been talking about. Do you need to get a degree from a prestigious university or could you go to a state university and get a liberal arts degree there and, and do well for yourself? You know, I actually have a chapter in the book called you can start anywhere. And I have examples of people who started out in community college and people from University of Nevada, Reno and the Cal State schools. And yeah, if you find the right professors and you connect with them, that can springboard you into a good place. And if you go to one of the world's fanciest schools, you're going to be surrounded by a lot of bright people and you're going to have a great alumni network and everything's a little easier. 
But that's not to say you can't make that happen at you know, Mississippi College or a lot of other places. And, you know, quite literally, those are examples in the, the book. You, you're going to need to try a little harder. You're going to need to figure out how to get your foot in the door. But uh, the benefits are, are universal. And the other thing I'd say is, you know, if you've picked a technical major and you've got time to go take a psychology class or a philosophy class or, a, you know, history class, that can get you some of the benefits too. I mean, I, I wrote mostly with a focus on what you could do with a full-fledged major. But one of the examples that hit home for me after I, you know, announced I was doing the book, I got a note from one of my college classmates who'd gone pre-med. And Neil just always liked to take classes outside his field. We were in a First Amendment uh, Bill of Rights seminar one time. And he wrote me and said, hey, I've done pretty well in medicine. I'm now a pretty prominent guy on public health. I go and testify at the state legislature a lot. And I need the MD to have credibility there. But it's the stuff I picked up in those English and law classes that lets me figure out what does the legislature really want to hear from me? When they ask me a tough question, what do I need to tell them to answer it? Where do I not need to go? Because it'll just embarrass all of us. And he said, it's that liberal arts training that actually made me an effective guy to go and do that sort of testimony. So in a case like that, you take the two disciplines and you put them together and it gets you farther than you'd be with just one of them. So you mentioned earlier about artificial intelligence, um, eating jobs, particularly tech jobs, right? So before it caught, you'd have to spend a million dollars to build a website. Now you can do it in five minutes with Squarespace, don't, you know, don't need programming. Um, are jobs that require liberal arts degree immune from this? Because I mean, I've been hearing talk of like AI, outsourcing stuff to AI in the legal field, medical field, even writing like, you know, really short snippets for news. What's the, what do you think the future is there? So here's what's really interesting is that Software and AI can replace the routine part surprisingly quickly. So if we you know, go into medical for a moment, uh, analyzing an X-ray, analyzing an MRI, over time, that's going to be the kind of thing where you're going to have software that can do it. But let's go to another specialty, the geriatrician, the person who deals with the elderly and tries to keep them healthy as long as possible. So much of that is a personal connection. You know, you can tell them, hey, be careful about falls and, you know, use a cane or get some uh, rails in your apartment or your home or whatever. And most people will nod their heads and say, yeah, 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 and they won't do it. And the good geriatricians know how to make that personal connection where they inspire their patients to make real changes in their lives. And that requires a very human touch. It's the same story in writing. I mean, there are now programs that can do minor earthquake reports. Earthquake that registers 2.8 on the Richter scale happened at 2.53 in the morning with an epicenter at whatever. And you don't need a human being to do that. You, you can just have a connect-the-dot software program that does it. But if you're wanting to write a poem, or if you're wanting to write a hit song, there has been basically no progress in the last 50 years in coming up with AI songwriters. And if you think about your favorite pop stars and what makes their songs powerful. That's not the kind of thing that software can do. So I think anytime you're, you're venturing into an area that involves creativity or curiosity or empathy, you're on safe ground. You're doing non-routine work and you're doing human to human work. If your job is very mechanical, then yeah, you should worry that in 10 or 20 years, it'll be automated. Yeah. Where I thought you could combine the benefits of the liberal arts degree is combining that with what we would consider trade jobs or blue collar jobs. I have a guy, I know a guy who went to college, got a you know degree, I forgot what it was, like literature or something like that. But then he ended up starting a lawn care company and he's doing fantastic. And I think one of the reasons why he's done so well is that 
he's developed that flexible thinking and he's really good at sales. And I think that from his work experience as a, you know, studying literature, that's helped him out a lot in his, you know, dirty job, quote unquote. You know, if you're in lawn care, half of what you're selling is the chance to chat with you and it ought to talk about how your home looks and that kind of thing. And I took my car in for an oil change yesterday and I ended up with, you know, the the little local mechanic where Ken is just a really fun guy to talk to. And he probably charged me ten or twenty dollars more than Speedy, but he's close, he's friendly, you know, he's got a take on life. If I've got, you know, issues uh, you know, involving all, all kinds of things from road trips to what have you. Ken's always got a story for me. And I'm going there as much to hang out with Ken as I am to get the oil changed. You can bring that into an awful lot of other things. I mean, financial planners, that's a field that if you take a narrow definition should be completely automated. There's software now to tell you where to put your money and what to have in stocks and what to have in bonds. But it turns out that we're using people more than ever because it's not enough just to know what we're supposed to do. We need someone who understands us and cares about you know, where we're going to take vacation and how the kids are doing and are they going to go to college or not. And if you can bring that level of warmth, people will pay extra for the human engagement. And a really good place to pick that up is in a college seminar, often in a field that has nothing to do with car repair or financial management but or lawn care. But this gets you in the habit of talking to people and engaging them. Yeah, you give an example of how automation ended up creating a lot more jobs in the finance industry. It was with banking, right? The automatic teller machine. It actually, we thought this would be the death of teller jobs. They've actually, banks have built more banks and hired more people to talk face-to-face with potential clients or their clients. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, automats. We've we had the ability to put food on a conveyor belt and run it around people's chairs in a restaurant since the 1950s. It's pretty rare for anyone to do that. You want to have that interaction with the server and you want to you know, meet the restaurant manager who knows you by name. Yeah, never underestimate the power of the human touch. So liberal arts degrees, as we talked about earlier, they don't pay that great. The jobs you can get don't pay that great right after you graduate. What's your career advice for folks who just graduated with some degree in humanities or psychology or literature? So they're on that path where 10 years from now, 15 years from now, they're earning a a comfortable income. So I have a chapter at the end of the book called How to Get Paid Properly. And there's an art to it, and I I don't want to peel it all down, but I'll, I'll share a couple different pointers for you. Uh, One is you need to be assertive about asking for a raise. And sometimes I think this is a gender issue. I think guys are, it's more comfortable for us to go in and say, you know, I'm working hard. I got a competing offer. What can you do for me? You know, whatever your background is, being assertive for yourself does pay off. And then the other thing, uh, this is a really good hack that I, I learned from a guy at NASA is don't just think about solving your boss's problems. Think about solving your boss's boss's problems. And that gets you higher up. That gets you more strategic. It also gets you much more visible with the kind of people who are going, you know what? You're just way too smart to be in this job. We should get you into a bigger job. And I think sometimes just doing what you're told will get you more of the same and taking the initiative to come up with ideas that'll help your company solve bigger problems. That can take you to good places. So anyway, read the chapter for more, you know, be assertive and look for ways to extend your reach beyond your literal job description. That will start to get you in a good place. Yeah, another issue too you talk about is how liberal arts schools are being more proactive about helping their graduates in the job. Because before, you know, liberal arts, a lot of liberal arts professors, like you learn for the sake of learning. It's This is not a trade school, but they're realizing they need to help their students 
find jobs. I mean, it's not their responsibility, but like provide some resources where they can learn how to market their their degree in the job market. Are you seeing steps there where it's getting better? Yeah, I am. I'm not seeing it happening as fast as I'd like, although at any speed, I would still be saying, do more, move faster. And uh, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. I think that is professor's responsibility that when I went to school, the place I went, you know, entry tuition was $3,500 a year. And if you really worked hard over the summer, you could earn that and pay for your whole year's college off of your summer earnings. You cannot do that now for the kinds of schools that charge, you know, $30,000, $40,000 or more. And I think that brings a responsibility that schools can't really pull people in at that price without saying, you know what, we're going to get you to a better place when you graduate, as opposed to, wow, here's your degree, now you figure it out. So I'm always happy when I see professors who've got networks and who share it. I think some of the best professors who are ones who've worked outside academia for a few years and know what the world is like beyond the gates and help their students. I'm seeing career services departments getting more money and doing much bolder things. I mean, for some of the schools in rural or isolated locations, they will load up students on a bus and take them to New York City or Chicago or wherever the job market is. And that's your spring break and you go meet employers. And the school sponsors it and sets up meetings. But you also need to show some initiative yourself. You, you need to create your own job. And I have a chapter in the, the book that talks about how to create a job that doesn't exist yet. It's not as easy as just sort of waiting for Deloitte to come to campus and say, we're hiring accountants and you show up with your accounting degree and they give you a job. But I think the opportunities to get to something that's really fulfilling are higher. It just takes a little more initiative. Right. You can do anything with a little large degree. There you go. There you go. Well, hey, George, this has been a, a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? So on the internet, www.georgeandersbooks.com will give you a, a link and it'll explain what the big ideas of You Can Do Anything Are. That's the name of the book. On Twitter, I'm at George Anders. And of course, the book is up on Amazon as well. Fantastic. Well, George Anders, thank you much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today was George Anders. He's the author of the book, You Can Do Anything, The Surprising Power of a Useless Liberal Arts Education. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash liberal arts, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. If you enjoy the show, have gotten something out of it, I appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Also, you know, share the podcast with a friend. That's how a lot of people find this podcast, so share it more the merrier. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.